0: Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. So this just happened to me, and I wanted to share it with you, which is that a dear friend in the community is having a tubish seder. And I saw him this morning, and he said, "You know, I have every fruit, but I I don't have carob, and and carob is really important. If you remember Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, the author of the Zohar, he was in a cave for like years and years and years and years with his with his son, and they were they were they were learning Torah. And Hashem miraculously sprouted this carob tree, and that's that's what they ate all all during those years. So he definitely wanted to have at his tubishvat carob. Anyway, he said he couldn't find it anywhere. Now, listen to this. A couple of weeks ago, there's a yogurt store in our community, and they sell, like, different flavors of yogurt. And I had just had meat, so but they have some par of yogurt, and they've got different toppings that they put on. So, so just about all the toppings are dairy. So I can't have any of those. And I asked him, do you have any toppings that aren't dairy? And I really wanted to put some chocolate sauce on it. I said, is this, is it dairy? Is it parv? He goes, it's dairy. He goes, but I have something for you, which is a chocolate substitute. I have carob chips. And I'm like, no, I don't want any carob chips. He goes, trust me, you're going to love the carob chips. I'm like, listen, I thank you. I appreciate it. But I really don't want any carob chips. He goes, "Okay, wait one second. I'm going to get you the carob chips. I'm like, what am I going to do? So he hands me the carob chips in, in like this container, a lot of carob chips. And I take them home, and I'm thinking to myself, what am I going to do with these things? So my first thought, of course, is to throw them out. And I'm like, you can't throw out food. So I put them in a nice bag in the freezer. And then two weeks later, my friend says, I don't have any carob. I need some carob for the Tuva Shvat Seder. I'm like, I've got carob chips. So I just gave him the carob chips and he was so happy because they're little pieces so he can hand them out to everybody. God provides. God provides. I'm just trying to be extremely practical today just about our day-in, day-out relationship with God because basically that's everything. Our relationship with God is, is, is the reason why God made this world. It's the reason why God made you and me. So, so we got to get it right. We got to get it right, and we need to know the basics. So, one of the classic, classic Torahs that I heard from Reb Shlomo in the name of the Rishon Rebbe. Of course, everybody knows who the Rishon Rebbe was. He was like one of the, the greatest Hasidic masters, one of the great Sadiqim. and he really tried to restore the the malchus, the kingship of, of the Davidic line of King David in this world, and also to reinstill people's pride of being Jewish. This is during the the czarist oppression in Russia where it was extremely, extremely difficult to be Jewish and they were making harsh decrees, beyond harsh decrees. And then came the Soviets. So, I mean, you know, that's why, by the way, Russians and Russian Jews are so like, they're like made out of concrete, right? You had to be like cement to survive those generations. So the original Rebbe tried to reinstill people's sense of pride and the the greatness of the Jewish Davidic line, the Messianic line. And he himself was a descendant of King David. In fact, I heard from Rabbi Shlomo that he had this bone at the top of his forehead and that that bone is a bone that King David had, which was a bone to hold his crown in place. Can you imagine? and that he wore a very large yarmulke to cover it so that no one should see it because he was so humble. But while he was so humble, he had a carriage of gold and everything was like gold and, and he himself, it wasn't for him that you know he was making a big deal of anything, but, but he used it so that, so that his Hasidim should see it and, and feel good. And one of the stories that I just can't get out of my mind is that he wore golden shoes and someone observed him one time walking in the snow in these golden shoes and leaving behind him in the snow a trail of blood and they realized that there were no bottoms on the shoes and that the only reason why he was wearing them was that other people should see them and feel good about Torah and mitzvahs and feel good about Hashem, but that he himself didn't want to derive any benefit from it whatsoever to the point where there were no bottoms on his shoes and he was trailing blood in the snow. Can you imagine? Like these levels of holiness are so beyond, 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 beyond. And we have so many tzaddikim who are living at this level and who understood the Torah at this level and then communicated it to us. You know, one of the most heartbreaking things I ever experienced in my life, and I am not exaggerating right now, is I went into a Jewish bookstore and I saw the Sefer Eish Kodesh. This is the the Torah commentary of the Piyasesna Rebbe, the Rebbe of the Warsaw Ghetto, right? who was writing the deepest Torah as the Holocaust was happening around him. And somehow this manuscript survived. That in itself is a story. And I, can you imagine the wisdom that's in this book? Can you imagine? And I saw there was a sticker on the back of the book and it said $13. And I almost collapsed. $13? $13? They should sell for like $200,000. $13? I, I To this day, I can't wrap my mind around that. But my point is, is that these people who live these exalted lives, they were like mountains. And I... And, and on top of that mountain was a vessel that they received the Torah and that they communicated the Torah to us. And we just have to open up a book. When you open up the book of the Rishon Rebbe, you are standing at the top of one of the highest mountaintops. Do you understand that? It's not, oh, and there's this opinion. And he said, that's not what's going on. Because we say Torah Chayim. The Torah is a Torah of life. So if you live the most exalted life, you get the most exalted Torah because God gives you the purest, highest, holiest understanding. And He gives you the privilege of communicating that to other people. We have such riches. We have such riches. So now listen. Listen to what the Rishna Rebbe says. We just read Parsha's Bishalach, which It's one of the most amazing Parshas, in some ways, maybe the most amazing Parsha in the entire Torah. It has the Jews finally leaving Egypt out of either after two hundred and ten years or four hundred years or four hundred and thirty years, depending on when you start the the counting of the decree. We have the falling of the man from heaven, the splitting of the sea, the war with Amalek. Just one event after another, all right in, right in Parsha's Beshalach. And the way Parsha's Beshalach begins, okay? Again, the Jews are leaving Egypt after generations of slavery. And now we have a foundation which is that if a verse begins with the word vayahi, it means something bad is coming. If it begins with the word vahaya, it means something good is happening. So now after the greatness of the event, the Jews are leaving Egypt right now and the Parsha begins with the word vayahi, something bad is coming. And I'll read it to you in English. It happened when Pharaoh, Paro sent out the people that God did not lead them by way of the land of the Plishtim, the Philistines, because it was near. So God, it's going to say God took us in a, in a roundabout way. But let's get to the point. The Vayahi, the negative thing is, it says, it happened when Paro sent out the people. So the original Rebbe says, do you know why? it says the word Vayehi, something negative, because on the deepest level, the Jewish people thought it was Pharaoh taking them out of Egypt and not Hashem. Have you ever heard anything more heartbreaking? We thought Pharaoh's taking us out. In other words, we thought that we could leave at that moment because Paro decided that it was okay for us to leave as opposed to God having the last word in this. You know, If you think Paro has the last word and now we can leave because he says we can leave, then it's all mixed up. In other words, when you think that Pharaoh's taking you out, then God is not leading you. when we look at the events of our lives and we think that this person is doing this to me and that person is doing that to me and we don't understand that everything is from Hashem then Paro is sending us out and Hashem is not leading us. I want to tell you a story about my father-in-law and this is... um. The way he left this world is that he asphyxiated. He choked. He choked to death. How did he choke to death? He was in the hospital and it said on his medical board there that he can't swallow and that no one should give him pills. Uh, A new nurse shows up, gives him pills, he chokes on them, he dies. Now, How did my wife, his daughter, and the other children react to this? They understood that he was at the end of his life, which he was, by the way. He was absolutely at the end of his life. And they understood, well, you know, that's how God took him. God could have taken him another way, but, you know, his heart could have stopped beating, whatever it is. But it was his time. It was absolutely, trust me, the end of his life, and so God took him that way, but one of the things that I'm like so proud of in terms of my wife's reaction is that she hasn't spent the last twenty years going that nurse in the hospital because she understood that so she she understands that it was from God and it was from God it was from God it was the end of his life, and that was the right time and Okay, you, you wouldn't pick that way to go, but, but that was the way that was decreed that he should go that way. We look at the events of our lives and are we shaking our fist at this person and that person and whatever it is? Or are we understanding that it's God leading us? Because even if we thought that it was Pyro leading us out in, in the depths of our limitations, and, and now we have to say, you know, on behalf of the Jewish people, we went through a lot. You know what I mean? So what are we expecting of ourselves at this moment in our history? If on some level, and maybe, maybe we knew that it was God, of course it's God, but maybe there was a part of us that still thought Pharaoh's kicking us out and that that was inappropriate at our level at the time, that we should even have that thought. Whatever the divine accounting is, Some part of us thought that it was Paro doing it. But of course it was God doing it. But when we think that it's the outside forces doing it, then this next part of the Parsha, that God did not lead them, kicks in. Because when we're busy devoting our consciousness to attributing power to something that doesn't have power, we're taking off our mind from the big picture, which is that God is God is the one leading us. Now, now what do we do with this? How is this a teaching about our own lives? And it's very much a teaching about our own lives right now, believe me. Because what we have to remember, and it's so easy to forget, a person has to remember not only every day, but multiple times a day that God is leading them. And now I want to talk about something that I just, I want to hammer, like Rip Shlomo would say it like this. He would say, before he would say something like what I'm about to tell you, he would say, say he would say, chevra, open your hearts. That's the first thing he would say. Chevra means, that means friends. Chevra, open your hearts. And then he would, then he would say the following. He would say, I want you to carve this into your hearts. Right? You know you know the famous teaching about how the letters were carved into the stone, right? That when you do ink on paper, that the ink is one level and the paper is another level. They're two different things. They happen to coalesce, but they're two different things. There's the ink and there's the paper. But when you actually carve into stone the letters, the letters and the stone become one entity. And remember, I shared with you from Rav firmer from the Eretzvi in the name of the Chedush Arim, that when we got the Torah at Mount Sinai, the letters were carved into the stone and we, 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 the, the death disappeared from the world, right? The, the wrongdoing from the eating from the tree of knowledge of Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve, disappeared from the world and we were going to live forever. And the Chedush Rim says the letters of the Torah, that's like your soul. The luchos, the tablets, that's like your body. And when the soul is engraved in such a way that the soul and the body, like when letters are engraved in the stone, the stone and the letters are the same thing. If your soul is the letters and your body are the tablets, when your soul and your body are the same thing, When it's one integrated entity, you live forever. There is no death, because there is no contradiction. Someone was interviewing me for a podcast, and he asked me a question that I get, you know, during these type of things. They say, hey, you you work for Hollywood, and, you know, you learn Torah. Is Is there a contradiction there? And I gave him an answer that I, I never gave before, which is why I never thought of it before. So I'm sharing it with you. God is one. There's no contradictions in God. Everything is contained within God. The only contradictions are within us. You understand? God is one. The contradictions, if they exist at all, are only within us individually. But when we carve the letters into our hearts, and we we, be, we become one integrated entity, then all the contradictions disappear and we just become a oneness within a a direct emanation of God's light. Right? Which we are anyway. It's just now that we understand that we are, which is a whole nother level. So now, what am I asking you to carve into your heart? This idea that we have to remind ourselves on a regular basis that God is leading us. And, and and this is, I think, one of the... See, if I throw out a word like amuna, faith, I don't know what amuna is. I don't know what faith is, honestly. Like, these words are so abstract, it's I, I don't know what it is, okay? But I can tell you the following thing. If you want it in an actionable way, if I know that God is leading me, then I'm, then I'm then I'm living faith. Right? Then I'm then I'm living it. If I know that whatever it is that I'm in a direct relationship with God and that the events of my life are a direct reflection of the direct relationship that I have with God. That I am living a life of faith. I don't have to have faith. I'm living faith. And now I want to tell you the thing you can have faith. There's no such thing as having faith. And let me explain to you. And the example that I love is imagine if I buy a sofa, then I have a sofa. Can you imagine there's a husband and a wife, and the husband loves the wife so much that, 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 Every every birthday he gives her another sofa. Every week, every Shabbos, every Yantaf, he gives her another sofa. I love you so much, and she's like, "Honey, we have fifteen sofas. I, we don't have any room for all of these. What we? What are we gonna?" I I understand that you're doing something beautiful, but can you find something other than another sofa to give me since we we have a sofa. So. What's the point? You don't need more than one sofa. If you have a sofa, then you have it. You don't have to get another one. Faith is not a sofa. And the way Rabbi Wolfson put it so awesomely was if, imagine someone asks you, did you have breakfast today? And you say, no, I had breakfast yesterday. It's You're Mazel Tov, I'm, I'm so glad you had breakfast yesterday, but breakfast is only relevant and important if you had it today. The same thing is with faith. You can't have faith. See, there's so many people who at some point in their life understood that everything in their life was coming from God. And so at a certain point, they told themselves, you know what, I have faith beginning of the end right there. Because at a certain point in their life, they say, what happened to my faith? Or have you ever heard someone say this? I wish I had your faith. Have you ever heard someone say that? I wish I had my faith. (laughs) You can't have it. You can only renew it. You can only renew it every day. You have to acquire it every single day anew. Remember, and it says this in like 10 different places in Torah sources. If you leave the Torah for one day, it leaves you for two days. An amazing thing. That's why it's so important to study Torah. And if you ask me, how do I have faith? How can I have faith? In the realest, most practical way. If you're telling me that faith is quicksilver, and that it's not a sofa, and it's not a possession, and I can't have it, then how can I have it? How can I acquire it on that daily way? And I'm going to tell you what I think is the best advice. And by the way, you can give your own answer to this question. But I'm going to give you my answer right now. Study Torah every day. Because the way we come into this world, the way we come into this world, or the way we quickly develop once we're born into this world. Either way, either way you want to express it. The bottom line is, there's a separation between our minds and our hearts. And we've got to get our minds and our hearts together. You know what it means not having your mind and your heart together? Your mind knows that there's only one power. But your heart is telling you, this guy is doing it to me. That's what it means that your mind and your heart aren't together, okay? So so what, why is Torah the fixing? Why is Torah the fixing? Because you see, Torah is like a set of glasses and every single part of the Torah contains the entirety of the Torah. So wherever you're learning Torah, Torah is one. Every part is connected. And when you learn it, you see the world in the following way. There's a God. He loves me. He's close to me. He has a desire for me. There's right and wrong. There's this life and the next. There's the redemption. That entire world view is communicated perhaps on the most subtle level, but is communicated in every piece of Torah. You know, someone came up to me the other day and said, would you say that you have a more Kabbalistic take on on the Torah, right? (laughs) And I said, I said, I love God's Torah. It's, and, and there's an inside to the Torah and there's an outside to the Torah. And the inside and the outside are both infinitely precious, right? It's just whatever we're learning today, whatever we're emphasizing today. But you have that, that sort of expanded view that it exists itself in the most esoteric, macro, amazing ways, and it also tells you what shoe and what sock to put on first. And it's the same Torah. It's the same Torah. So, so when we learn Torah every single day, we reacquaint ourselves with the idea that we live in this, in this magnificent ordered universe that's also... Very mysterious. <laughs> you see, this is this is the connection that so many people don't make. They project their own lack of understanding of their lives onto the universe and they say that the universe itself is random. Nothing could be further than the truth. If you study cosmology, if you study astronomy, if you study physics, if you study if you study chemistry, if you study biology, if you study every field of science, you see that we live in a magnificently ordered universe. It's just the pathway of our lives is mysterious. Within that ordered universe, our lives are riddled with question marks but that the universe itself is ordered. Absolutely. Don't make the mistake that because I can't understand my own life and the events of my own life that I'm living in a chaotic universe. You are not. You are not. You are living in a magnificently ordered universe. It's just God, by design, it was God's idea, by design, created a pathway for ourselves where to take the next step forward, we have to rely on Him. We have to hold on to the hand of our Holy Father and Mother, right? We have to attach ourselves to God. Remember, over the course of Tanakh, God doesn't have a body, right? God makes bodies. But God calls Himself so many different things throughout Tanakh, father, mother, best friend, twin, doctor, lover, big sister, believe it or not. God wants wants us to rely on him. So he doesn't reveal certain things to us, but not because the the universe is chaotic. Very important. Okay, and I wanna say something deeper. We're about to celebrate Tubishvat. Tubishvat is the new year of trees. And Tu Bishvat is really about reconnecting in the deepest way to the tree of life, the Eitz Chaim. And Rav Yitzhak Isaac Haver has a Kabbalistic map of the universe, and it's the letter Aleph. And I think you can all picture The letter Aleph, but I'll just kind of draw you one, just so you have it in your mind. The letter Aleph, of course, is made of three letters. The Yud above and the Yud below, and a diagonal Vav going through the two Yuds, right? The Yud above, the Yud below, and then in between you've got the diagonal Vav. And... Basically, the yud above stands for Atsilus. There are many ways to explain it, but the highest, the highest part of heaven. The yud below stands for the world underneath it, right? Because the Torah is going from heaven all the way down to earth. So in this formulation, the yud below would be Berea, which is the dimension underneath atzilus. And that vav connecting the two of them is the Eitz Chaim, is the tree of life, is the Torah itself. Which means, practically speaking, if you want to take an express elevator ride, if you want to ride that vav to the top of all the heavens, you know how you do it? Through the Eitz Chaim, which is the Torah. You know, just as an aside, you know the wooden poles on either side of a Torah scroll? You know what those are called? The Eitzchayim, the trees of life. That's, that's what's holding, that's, that's what's attached to the Torah. So, so in the deepest way, the Kabbalists are telling us at the Tubishvat Seder, which is tonight, that we're, we're, we're rectifying the mistake of Adam and Chava. Right? And we're accessing instead of the tree of knowledge, the tree of life. And once you eat from the tree of life, then you can eat from the tree of knowledge. But you have to eat from the tree of life first. You have to connect yourself to and ground yourself into the ultimate reality that all that exists is God and that He expresses Himself through His Torah. That's that's the first step. Right? And then once we do that then we can integrate all of the knowledge of the world into that structure and will be always on the right path. Okay. So it's important that we understand that 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 Torah and, and Judaism is pro-knowledge. I mean, of course, I mean if you just look at the way Jews have lived their lives and and how our whole lives are dedicated to knowledge and acquiring knowledge and everything like that. So it seems, you know, just curious that everything went wrong from eating from the tree of knowledge. Like, it sounds like we're anti-intellectual or anti-information, like, but nothing could be further than the truth. So then how do we understand why everything went wrong when we ate from the tree of knowledge? And the answer is you have to just widen your um, lens for a moment and, and you have to realize that it's, the problem was not eating from the tree of knowledge, which we did and which did cause a problem. <laughs> when you widen your lens, you see that there's another character in the picture as well, which is the tree of life. So, so you have to eat from the tree of life and then you can eat from the tree of knowledge. And let me give it to you in a much more practical way that everyone can understand. Have you ever met children who think that they're smarter than you are? That's basically every child in the world. And the example that I love to give is, imagine a child says to you, like, you know what the greatest thing in the world would be? Is if I could eat 30 chocolate bars. And you say back to that child, if you eat 30 chocolate bars, you're gonna feel terrible. I mean, you're gonna get like sick. And the child goes, excuse me, excuse me, where did I lose you? If one chocolate bar is wonderful, 30 chocolate bars, 30 times wonderful would be 30 times more wonderful. Do you follow dad? Should I do it more slowly or did you get the math? And meanwhile, the child doesn't know what he's talking about because the child hasn't experienced life. And, you know, because you've eaten from the tree of life, you've experienced life. But the child hasn't and and is extrapolating from a single data point and, and going to ridiculousness. So so that's all of us. God, who created the universe, who created us, who created our minds. Our minds are finite compared to God. Do you understand? God created our finite minds. And you want to hear something even deeper? This is crazy deep. God invented, concocted a thing called logic. Logic is an invention. God created logic. So God hardwired our minds with this thing called, quote unquote, logic created our minds which are finite compared to his infinity, and now are you ready for the punchline? We then use our minds to tell God what he's capable of and what he's not capable of, what he can and can't do. It's the height of absurdity. But it is the child telling the parent, where did I lose you? (laughs) If one chocolate bar is great, 30 chocolate bars would be wonderful. So this is the idea. This is where humanity, so to speak, went wrong. Is when we left the tree of life, which would have plugged us into the broader universal experience of truth. And where we went to a narrow place of knowledge where we weren't able to integrate that knowledge into the greater context. You see, the snake says to us, You want to become part of the God club? God doesn't want you to be part of the God club. You can be God, too. Don't you want to be God? Yeah, I want to be. That sounds pretty good. I'll be God. Well, if you eat from this tree, then you also can be God. And that's why God's telling you not to eat from the tree. Because he doesn't want competitors. But you can just eat from the tree, and then you can be God also. Well, that all sounds very good. Why wouldn't I want to be God? except there's only one God. <laughs> and we only know that there's only one God if we eat from the tree of life and that we understand that all there is is God and that I'm part of God anyway. <laughs> I'm already part of God. That's, that's, that's the idea. So, so, so again, these things have to be learned in depth. And and we shouldn't make the mistake of thinking that eating from the tree of knowledge, no, you know, like some kind of book-burning kind of society. We're a book-burning organization. Don't, don't acquire that knowledge. We're not anti-knowledge. We are the great fonts of knowledge for the world, right? And have been historically, right? And so we love knowledge, but... The knowledge has to be integrated into the macro truth of the oneness of God. And once we get that foundation right, which is the idea of eating from the tree of life, then we can eat from the tree of knowledge. And again, the, the, the rabbis teach on a very deep level that we were destined to eat from the tree of knowledge, but, but it was supposed to be after we ate from the tree of life. Do you understand? So, so it was never meant not to be eaten but it has to be eaten in the right time. And what that means on a practical level for us, even as adults, is that when we eat from the Torah, and we allow the knowledge of the Torah, the oneness of God of the Torah to nourish us, then then we can integrate everything after the fact. Because remember, so many people look to science, as the ultimate source of truth. But as the Rambam writes, there can't be a contradiction between Torah and science. Because the one who wrote the Torah is the one who made science. It has the same author. Do you understand? All science is, is God describing how he does things. That's all science is. God's own description of how he runs the world. So the Rambam says that if you get, if if they disagree, you're either not understanding the science correctly or you're not understanding the Torah correctly. But they can't disagree. So, so, and yet, and yet, we'll always have questions because we can't know absolutely everything. See, one of the Interesting debates that I think is happening. I don't know whether it's actually happening in these words or not, but happening in society is, this This debate is underlining a lot of discussions. You ready? Are human beings capable of knowing everything? And we would say we can't know everything because God is infinite and we're finite. So how can we know everything? Can a cup... Can a single cup hold all the water of all the oceans in the world? So then how can my mind hold all the infinity of God? It can't. And then the other school of thought is we don't know everything, but through science, we are on track to knowing everything. And the day will come when we will know everything. That is another belief, that that total knowledge maybe we don't have it right now but we can achieve it and the people who say that are not idiots because they've seen such rapid like expansions of our of our knowledge base that that it's not unreasonable to project to a point where all knowledge has been become attainable But I'm telling you from the very structure of the universe that God is infinite and we are finite, that is not a realistic reality. So so we will always not know. We will always live with not knowing. That's the point. And and we just have to become comfortable with that. And you know something? There's something very beautiful about that. As as I love to tell you, the Rebbe said, I would never... Worship a God I understood. (laughs) Why? Because if you understand everything about God, then you're also God. So then what do you need God for? One of the premises of God being God is that you don't completely understand him. Because if you completely understood God, then you'd also be God. So we have to become at peace with that and not, not just at peace, we have to turn it into a positive and be at awe with it, right? Like I remember one time I, I, was, I, it, it, I was during the year of mourning my mother who had left the world. And one of the customs of mourning is not to dance, because right? dancing is, there's a bit of frivolity to it and festiveness that's not really appropriate for, for for the year of mourning. And I was at a Purim Suda and we were benching and I never was part of a benching like this before in my life. We sang the entire thing and people were banging and singing and it was the most joyous thing, benching I've ever been a part of. And then in the middle of the benching, people jumped up and they started dancing and I I couldn't contain myself. And in the back of my mind, I was thinking, you know, I'm not really supposed to dance, but I can't I can't help it. And I jumped up and I spun around and I landed on my ankle in a twisted way and I fell on the ground. And within seconds, my ankle blew up like a grapefruit. And I remember this because it was one of the happiest moments in my life. <laughs> Because as I was laying on the ground, I I remember saying, God, thank you. Never in a million years would I have realized that I needed a broken ankle right now, but you knew. You knew. And you gave it to me. I never would have been able to arrive at this on my own, but you knew. So to turn that lack of understanding into awe and wonder and appreciation and even love, that is a choice that we have. And what a beautiful way to go through life because we're never going to know anything either way. Do you understand? (laughs) So either you, that's either your attitude or it's like, wow. I never knew I needed that. Oh, thank you, God. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And you know something? I'm not making this up. Because God knows all my past lives. Remember, Judaism believes in reincarnation. God knows all my past lives. He knows what my soul needs to be fixed. He knows what's going to happen with all of my generations that come after me. He knows what's happening in my life. And for the rest of my life, God knows all of this information. And for the one who knows all of this information, I want—I want to trust Him. I put my trust in the one who knows more than I do. Why wouldn't I? Right? I just heard a uh, very amazing story of uh, someone extremely special in our in our community—the father of one of the the, the founders of of the happy minion, just was nifter, he just just passed on. You know, we don't, we don't say die, by the way. We, we use the word nifter. Nifter means to leave, like, because we, we don't die. Our, our soul just continues on. But there's two forms of life, and everything is life. It's either life inside the body or life outside the body. So there's no real concept of, of death. It's just life inside the body and then life outside the body. And, and again, something that I just think is so important because I don't think enough people know this, that, that this is one of the foundations of Judaism, is that you continue to be you outside your body. And, and the example that I always like to, to, to give, and, and I saw this from Rabbi Ari Kaplan, and today is his yurtzai, is Neshama an Aliyah, one of the great teachers of the Jewish people. He compared it to, say, let's say, your, your, your desktop computer. Well, your desktop computer is a piece of hardware that's like your body and all the information stored up in your computer, all your files, all the information, all the things that make it your computer, that's like your soul. And just like you can put in a flash drive and extract all of the information out of your hard drive, out of your computer, right, which is like your body, so too when the soul leaves, the soul leaves with all of your information. It leaves with all of your personality. It leaves with all of your memory of your life. So you continue to be you outside your body. And, and that's why I, I think that this is a, a major, major, major idea. Because so many people, and I'm talking about people who, who believe in God, who believe that we have a soul, who believe in the afterlife, believe this next thing which is not true. Which is that after your soul leaves your body, you disappear into the oneness of God. And that's a very lovely spiritual thought, except it's not true. <laughs> you remain you. Now, that's good news and bad news. <laughs> the, good, the good news is that we really do live forever. That's, that's the good news the the bad news is that you continue to be you which means that you want to become the best you during this lifetime now of course there is a purification process in the in in the next world and and so ultimately we do become the best versions of ourselves the most refined versions of ourselves through this this process in the in the afterlife right but ideally ideally you want to do get all that purification and fixing out of the way during this lifetime, meaning to say whatever you need to accomplish, that, that you do it here. And, and they say a very important teaching, where there's justice below, there's not justice above. So what that means is, if you can get rid of anything, any wrongdoing below, it's not necessary to do it above. In other words, it's not that there's no justice above, like, oh, it's unfair in heaven. That's, that's not the point. In other words, once you get rid of anything that you need to get rid of in terms of the process of justice, I owe this person money, I, that person owes me, whatever it is, once all that is sorted out, it doesn't have to be taken care of in, 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 the, next, in the next realm, in the next dimension of reality. So, so that's why it's important to really take care of business in, in, during, during our lives right now. And and to the extent that, that we did anything that we regret or whatever it is, you take care of it now because then you get at it out of the way. And, and, and that's great. But the headline here is that is that when we talk about someone who's left this world, we don't use the word die. We say, nifter, he left, he left, she left. In other words, it's on to life outside the body. And we remain us. Okay. So so having said that, this amazing, amazing man, right? This this is a story that they told about him today. And is Neshama Shaddaf and Aliyah. And here's the story. He was in Auschwitz. And all of his life, he refused to take no for an answer. And when he got there, they served him bread. And it was a clump of burnt something and he so much so that he didn't even recognize it this quote unquote food that they were handing him and he said to the person next to him what is this i don't even know what this is and he said that's your food and he was like well no no i i I don't accept this and and the person said you know (laughs) Be careful, right? Because this is what they're giving you, you know? And we all know that they'd they, they shoot you on the spot. Shoot you on the spot if you, if you made some sort of fuss over something like that with one of the Nazi guards, their name should be erased. So, so he started davening and he davened to Hashem. He said, Hashem, you made so many miracles. Where are my miracles? I want to see those miracles. You, you, you've made so many miracles. And, and at that moment he said, I can't eat this bread. It's, it's terrible. A window opened in one of the buildings and someone threw out fresh bread to him and pieces of chocolate. And he took that and he walked over to the person who told him, don't say anything and he said to that person this is my god now an amazing 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 story amazing story now i want to i want to continue to talk about it but that's really the end of the story i want to make a separate point right now okay totally separate The person who is relating this story, as, as this person, as many of us grow older, we begin to fantabulize our lives, right? Meaning to say that things, maybe things that never took place, we, we tell stories about things that never took place. Or there were stories that did take place, but we've added New details that I was a commander in in the in the Partisans or whatever it is like. You now we, we've added details that actually didn't happen, right? And the person who told this story, who related this story, his grandson, made a special point to say that he told me this story in Auschwitz early on before he started telling people, you know, things that were a little bit more exaggerated. Right, to show that this, this story was was very credible and it really really did happen. Okay. So it made me think. It made me think about just human beings and the process of midrash of, of, of the midrash. And I'll tell you the connection that I'm making. You see, my my beloved friend Jeff Mann Smashama should have an aliyah he he told me something that i've shared with you many times but it's it's such an essential foundation for torah understanding which is that every midrash is true and those of us who have studied midrash know that it's much of midrash is fantastical right how could it be true that's talking about giants and you know with Teeth, the, 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 the length of oak trees and, and you know, like cr- crazy, crazy events. How, 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 how can you tell me that every single medrash is true? Like it just defies belief. And, and some of them clearly are not being told as stories, which are true. Okay. Now, to the, to the unsophisticated. To those who don't understand the way Torah is communicated by the sages, their their methodologies, those people, with their lack of understanding, read this, and then they say, this is foolishness. But they're the fools, because they don't understand how the sages are communicating. So what does it mean that every medrash is true? What it means is that the rabbis, as, as Rabbi Shimon Green so beautifully said one, to, one time, that the, the rabbis are desperate to communicate. They're desperate to communicate. And so as a result, they'll find a means to transmit to you the truth of the teaching. Now they, they might do it with a story with a story that never took place. But the point of that story is that there's a truth in that story which is explaining the truth in the verse of the Torah or the event of the Torah. And sometimes they'll bring you an event that actually did take place. Even if it's wild, but it did take place. So you don't actually know, did the event take place? Did the event not take place? But on a certain deep level, it doesn't matter. Because what matters is that a truth is being communicated which is explaining the event and that that truth is true now with that in mind listen to this as certain people get older and this is a fairly common event they begin to exaggerate and make up things about their lives and you think like i don't i don't know what like what to believe anymore But what I'm trying to tell you right now is what they're doing is they're saying medrash about their own lives. There's a certain point where if someone says, I was a commander in the partisans, and you go, is he really a commander in the partisans? It doesn't matter. What they're telling you is, at a certain point, I was given A position of responsibility in an act of resistance that I pulled off. Do do, do you understand? Do you understand? They're communicating the truth of an event and people get caught up in the language of it. But that's not the point. The point is is that at a certain point, a transition takes place where a person starts saying medrash about their own lives. And that's how it's to be understood. Did the actual event take place? It may have. It absolutely may have. But whether it did or whether it didn't, they're telling you something that did happen. And that's how they're communicating it. So with that in mind, let me tell you a story. One of my favorite stories, I heard it from Rabbi Beryl about the Chofetz Chaim, right? so this was during the, the Soviet era in, 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 in Russia, which was, you know, horribly, horribly oppressive to Jews. They, the, the Soviets outlawed religion. Can you imagine such a thing to outlaw religion? They, they, they did it, they did it. And it was a prosecutable offense. You could, you could die for it. I mean, it's like, we're talking about ancient Rome right now in the Soviet Union in our lifetimes tens hundreds of millions of people affected by this in our lifetimes so they one of the students of the Chovitz Chaim was 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 falsely accused and brought into court and they they brought in as a you know as a as a character witness that that, that this person who was being falsely accused is actually a, a very wonderful person and and who is that character witness? None other than the Chofetz Chaim. So I mean, that's like wow. You know, the Chofetz Chaim is going to testify on your behalf that you are a good person. So the the judge, uh, the, the the lawyer who is you know representing the falsely accused person wanted to make sure that the that the judge understood what it meant that the Chofetz Chaim was was about to speak on behalf of this person. So the lawyer started going on and on about the greatness of the Chovetz Chaim. And at a certain point, the prosecuting attorney for the Soviets interrupted him and said, everything that you just said, they're all lies. And the Chovetz Chaim said, I agree that they're lies, but do they say these lies about you? <laughs> right? So... The point the point and it's very much related to everything that we're saying right now but just a further point that rabbi wine was making by by bringing up this story is that historically speaking certain stories like legends if you will attach themselves to great personalities and you wonder did that actually take place is that actually true and the and the answer is it doesn't matter if it's true or not the fact that this story stuck to that person is an illustration of that person's greatness in that area. Do you understand? So it's beside the point. So, so there are a lot of people who are sort of like, they imagine themselves to be great sophisticates and they're, they're, they're you know such literalists. And so they, they'll endlessly debate whether something actually happened or not. And they're missing the entire point <laughs> that there was an aspect of greatness which was exhibited by this person, which was exhibited by this event. And that is what's being communicated so that we should understand and appreciate what happened there or who that person was. And I think that this process is so organic and so intuitive. What I'm sharing with you, the the new point that I'm sharing with you, is that we even start to do this about our own selves. We start to like darsh in our own lives, if you will, in an attempt to communicate what we went through so that people should understand. So, so if, you, if you meet an older person, don't think that they're lying to you, okay? Now we're going a little bit deeper. Don't think that they're lying to you. Don't think that they're trying to trick you, right? They're trying to share something with you and that this, at this point in their life is the best way that they know how to do it, right? That's, that's the point, that's the point. So, you know, there's a, a certain sensitivity that if you wanna kind of like, you know, climb the ladder of being a little bit more spiritually sensitive, right? You wanna increase, refine yourself. There comes a point where you start to have to hear the words inside the words, the words behind the words, right? See the a, a classic example of this is the brisker Rob was saying over the halachas of um, the four cups of wine Seder night, and someone raised their hand and said, "Are you allowed to substitute milk for 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 the four cups of wine Seder night?" And you know he gave whatever answer, but. But here's the point. After they finished their session, he came up to the person and invited him to his house for for Seder. Why? Because he understood he didn't have enough money for wine. And if he's drinking milk at the Seder, it means he also doesn't even have enough money for meat. So he doesn't have money for wine. He doesn't have money for meat. The person is broke. The person needs a place for, for, for Seder and he doesn't have one. So we invited him. But again, what's the point? The point is that when the person asked the question, the brisker Rob was hearing the words behind the words. And that's how we have to listen to each other, right? And that's, that's, that, that's important. That's important to, to hear the needs that aren't being expressed explicitly because the person is either embarrassed or doesn't have the wherewithal to express them. Sometimes, I'll just get even more practical, okay? Sometimes, someone is about to ask you a favor, and you know the favor they are about to ask you, and you know that it is difficult for them to ask you the favor. So just interrupt them and say, can I do this for you? (laughs) Right? Why make them go through the uncomfortable process? Why? you You have already intuited what is on the table, where it's going. Just cut to it. Hey, if you have the wherewithal, let's say it's money, let's say you have a few extra bucks. Hey, listen, I know times are tough right now. You know, I have a few extra dollars can i can i can I share it with you? You know, we'll make a loan, whatever it is. You know do, do, do you hear do you hear what I'm talking about? And so this is a very practical thing in our lives. okay. Now, I want to talk about another, another idea. And, and again, we're, we're, we'll get into some, some stuff on the, on the Parsha and the Torah and things like that. But remember, so much of Torah, so much of life is about making art out of your own life. Is about taking who you are and crafting yourself into essentially a work of art. Because remember, at the end of our lifetime, we're just going to be a soul. And what is that soul going to look like? You know, like, like every time you do a mitzvah, you're literally like landscaping and decorating your eternity. Like, you know, you, you went out of your way for someone. Now there's like this beautiful waterfall in your, in your eternity right? You just, you just did something else. Wow. Now that waterfall is surrounded by like trees and flowers. So, so, so you can do this. You can do this with your own life to, to, to mold and to craft your personality. And, and the effects of this actually are eternal. And we will inhabit, we will inhabit the beauty that we make in this world forever. So, so you're, you're, this, this lifetime can be really considered like a great furnishing expedition, right? You're, you are decorating your eternity. That's what you're here. You're like basically just shopping for materials just to build the most beautiful eternity. And, and that's one level, right? That is one level of actually what is going on right now. And by the way, every time you learn Torah, you are beautifying your eternity, what you're going to be living in. Okay. So with that in mind, someone asked me a question. I'm not a rabbi. It was a kashus question. They wanted to know. They said, listen, I've got a dairy sink, and I was just handling an, a meat sandwich. <laughs> so, so can I wash my hands in my dairy sink? Like they had a little gravy on their hands, meat gravy. Okay. So... They said, or should I go into the bathroom and wash my hands in the bathroom sink? So, and then they threw in an extra word. And and this is why I'm telling you this. They said, or should I be machmer, right? That's Hebrew, that means strict. Or should I be strict and wash in the bathroom sink? Okay. So I just want to tell you the answer that I gave them because I think that this is really important about our own lives day to day. You see, this word strict, or should I be strict, is like really tricky. (laughs) But it's like a really good word that gets to the heart of a lot of ways people go through life. I said, look, What we want is a relationship with God okay that's that 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 can be described in many different words Yeshimayam year is like a beautiful thing, it's like this awesome awe, right like the Balsham tov describes it that you're walking through the king's palace and you don't want to upset anything and it's so ma- it's so majestic and it's just. The beauty of it is blowing your mind, right? You don't want to track your muddy boots into the king's palace. You want to be careful because you're, it's, you're so reverential of like the greatness of who you're standing before. So that's yira. And, and this type of yira is pointing to a closeness and a relationship that you have with God. Okay. So the point is like this. You want to have a relationship and be in a relationship with God, not with a rule book. That's the point. <laughs> you see, when someone says, when some, now we have rules. We have ways that God has instructed him to interact with him. But when I'm doing those mitzvot right now, when I'm doing those halachas right now, I'm doing them. Because I'm expressing myself in the most beautiful way in this relationship with the divine, as opposed to I have a direct relationship with a rule book, and what I'm doing is living my entire life in my relationship with this rule book. So I want to make sure that I'm communicating and that I'm not being misunderstood. It doesn't mean that, oh, I don't care about the rules and I'm not going to be in a relationship with a rule book. What am I, some kind of moron, right? I'm in a relationship with God. And now here comes the fun part. And I get to decide how I get to be in a relationship with God. That's not what I'm saying. That is not what I'm saying. I'm saying that, look, you see, you know, there's so many sitcoms that have done this plot. The Simpsons is one of them where, you know, Homer Simpson loves bowling. His wife, Marge Simpson, hates bowling. And what does Homer get for to his wife for a birthday present? A bowling ball, <laughs> right? So, so for better or for worse, many of us have been in this situation where you receive a present and you're like, that's not a present for me. That's a present for you. Come on, who are you fooling? You're fooling nobody. So the idea is like this. If you know that someone loves something and wants something and you're in a real love relationship with that person, you want to give them that thing which they love and that thing which they want. And God has communicated to us that what he wants from us are the Torah and the mitzvot and that these are the divine pathways that God wants to connect with us on. So if we truly love God, and if we truly want to be in a relationship with God, as opposed to giving someone a bowling ball bowl who doesn't want a bowling ball because we love bowling balls, right? Then we're doing it according to the Torah. So, so that, that's what I mean, to be in a relationship with God. So, So, so what I'm trying to do is to change your mindset about what it means to be quote-unquote strict. A lot of people go, oh, he's so strict. He's so strict. And it's kind of a negative thing. And a lot of times what's really going on is the person is just projecting their own lack of understanding and their own lack of sophistication about being in a relationship with God onto the other person. Oh, he's so strict, she's so strict. But the other person really is being more careful because they're trying to express their love in a more beautiful way in the relationship that they have with God as opposed to the rule book. Now, having said that, there are people who are extremely strict And their entire relationship with God is with a rule book. (laughs) And that's a drag. That's a drag. Is it better than nothing? It is absolutely better than nothing. It's fantastically better than nothing. They are doing tremendous things. But they're missing the heart and the soul and the beauty. Because the whole idea is to be in that relationship. The whole idea is to be in that relationship. And that's what all Torah is, and that's what all of life is. Is you say to yourself, you know something? There's a greater reality out there, and I want to attach myself to the beyond. To the one who makes it all, and to the one who makes me, and to the one who keeps it going, and to the one who keeps me alive. I want to be in a direct connection with that divine oneness. And God said, okay, I'm going to give you the tools to do it. Here's my Torah. Here's my Torah. So so stay on track. Because a lot of people start off that way. And they go, I want to be in a relationship with that oneness. And the next thing you know, their head is in a book. And they're in a direct relationship with the book. And they've forgotten about God. And this was one of the things, historically speaking, what Hasidus, the Hasidic revolution, came to address. To sort of like chiropractically readjust the souls of the Jewish people and to put us back in alignment with a direct relationship with God. That was the whole idea that Hasidus, like just sort of like reprioritized what it meant to be in prayer, to tefillah. Like it was just Torah, like Torah, which is huge and never say anything against Torah. But, but everything became about that relationship with the book. And what the Hasidic Rebis did was they, they reinstated that direct relationship with God himself through prayer. Now you need both. But again, prayer is that conduit. Talking to God is that conduit to make it that relationship between you and God. And everything that I've been saying up until now can be summarized in one bit of advice that Rabbi Nachman gives that I think is that if you talk to anyone who's like trying to start out on the path of authentic spirituality, authentic connection, this is what you tell them. And we have to tell ourselves this all the time. We have to remind ourselves of this, which is talk to God like he's your best friend. Talk to God all the time and talk to him like he's your best friend. You see, the crazy thing is is that people think they don't know about talking to God. They think talking to God means prayer. And prayer for most people means reading strange words out of a book that you have no connection to. Do you understand this level of exile? Prayer for 90 percent plus percent of the people in the world means reading words out of a book that you have no connection to whatsoever. And that's what they think talking to God is. But talking to God is not prayer. (laughs) When you're talking to God, you're talking to God like he's your best friend. All of a sudden, there's a relationship there. All of a sudden, it's year and Vegas kite, and it's the love affair that we're talking about. And you get to rediscover it in one simple way, talking to God like he's your best friend. That's how you do it. And it's so simple. And it can be done any moment, all day, anywhere, anytime. Except in the bathroom. (laughs) And then Rabbi Nachman gives the best advice. You ready for this? He says... Really, just out of respect, not that God isn't in the bathroom, of course, God is everywhere. But out of respect, not there. But what can you do in the bathroom? You ready for this? You can long to talk to Hashem. <laughs> you can be in the bathroom and go, ah, oh, I wish I could talk to you, Hashem, right now. Ah, oh, I wish I could draw close to you right now. And that longing is so beautiful. Okay? So let's just recap, because I'm saying something very, very practical and very, very essential to everyone's life in this world right now. Don't have a relationship with a book. If you want to be strict, strict is great. But strict means that you want to refine and do something even more beautiful in terms of your relationship with God. That's the point. That's the point. Okay. And if someone else is strict, you know,